Before we stand for the reading of God's word this morning, I want to give just a brief word of introduction. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark today. And I want to just observe something that may be entirely obvious to you if you've looked at the bulletin. The scripture reading is long. It's 37 verses. And I don't say that just to observe there's a lot of words on the page. There's something significant about the length of this. If you know anything about the Gospel of Mark as we've looked at it and read it together over the last year, you know that Mark appreciates brevity. He only tells the essential parts of any given story or conversation. He moves quickly from one event and one narrative to the next. He's the shortest of all the gospel writers, the briefest. And so it should stand out to us that he spends an entire chapter, 37 verses in length, on one conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He does not want to drop one word or one phrase. Because Mark knows, as Jesus knew, what he is disclosing to the disciples and to us is essential and significant for our view of redemptive history and for our understanding of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus as we wait for Christ's return. And so as we read, I encourage you, take note. These things are real and true, significant for us as God's people this morning. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial to deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as, not, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would take your word, this your word, make it clear and convicting to our hearts and minds, change our lives by its power and truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you know the calendar, if you're aware of dates and events, you know that there is a significant day coming. Maybe for some of you, it's already come last week. For some of you, maybe it's coming this week or the week that's following. Kids, you, you probably know what I'm talking about the next big day on your calendar, the first day of school. Some of you think of the first day with incredible excitement and anticipation. Some of you think of that first day with kind of a groan and a moan. But the first day is coming. And on the first day of school, whether you are going to the first day of preschool or the first day of your last year of graduate school, on that first day, your teacher has a particular job to do. No matter what the subject, no matter what the age, no matter what the size of the class is, your teacher has a particular job 
Kids, see if they do it well this year. They need to whet your appetite for what's about to come. They need to make you excited for what you're going to experience and learn. But they also need to not tell you everything. Because if they told you every vocabulary word that you had to learn and every math equation that you had to solve and every page that you had to read and everything that's going to be on those exams at the end of the year, you would probably come home crying. And so would your parents. Because it would be overwhelming to know every detail and to know all that was to come. Now, the reason I talk about the first day of school and talk about that dynamic of teachers helping kids to get excited but not overwhelming them and making them anxious is, is because of what name the disciples use for Jesus in this passage and for how he speaks to them. Notice the name that the disciples use for him. They don't call him master. They don't call him savior. They don't use his name, Jesus. The name they use in verse one is teacher, teacher. And as a master teacher, and even more significantly, as a compassionate, loving, wise friend, Jesus pauses all he is doing on this incredible week in the life of his ministry, and he sits down in a garden together with his disciples, a beautiful scene overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He sits down with them, and he tells them enough to create anticipation, but not so much that they would have anxiety or fear about all that's to come. Jesus is speaking in these, in these words, in this conversation about what is going to occur for his disciples and for the Christian church, for all who follow Jesus in the years between his ascension and his return on the last day. He's laying out a picture for them of, of what is to come. Now, to break down these 37 verses into some more bite-sized pieces, verses 1 through 23, Jesus is talking about this, this age between his ascension and his return as an age of tribulation, and he's equipping the disciples to live faithfully in that age of tribulation. In verses 24 through 33, then, there's this next section. It begins by saying, after those days of tribulation, there's this section in which Jesus is speaking specifically about his, his second coming, his return. And then he concludes those, the passage in the last verses, verses 34 through 37, speaking of how we are to live faithfully in the days waiting for his return. So that gives kind of this basic landscape of the passage of what Jesus is saying, of all that he's disclosing, unfolding to the disciples about these things. But the first and primary focus that Jesus has is this question that the disciples ask him in verse 3. Look down in the passage that you have before you. Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him this question. Verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will the sign be when all these things are about to be accomplished? two questions, both of the questions oriented around this comment that Jesus has made about the destruction of the temple. The disciples have been looking at the temple 
observing its incredibly large foundation stones and its beautiful structure. This is the second temple, which the Jews rebuilt after returning from exile. The temple complex was vastly improved and expanded under Herod the Great. Some of the foundation stones um, there were approximately 60 feet wide, a single stone, 60 feet wide. Think of the spread of this platform at the front of the sanctuary and 20 feet high, each one weighing over a million pounds. My wife and I were doing some landscaping yesterday in our backyard, moving some paving stones, some landscaping stones that were like 24 inches long and maybe two inches thick. And they were heavy. They were heavy. These stones were massive, massive stones. And so the disciples are incredibly confused and incredibly surprised when Jesus says that not one stone will remain upon another, but they will all be thrown down. And so they ask these questions, when is this gonna happen? And what will be the signs that it's about to happen? And Jesus answers both the questions, not with perfect clarity, but he answers both the questions. He takes the second one first. He talks about the signs that are going to lead to the destruction of the temple, the signs that the temple is about to be destroyed. And he gives four main signs. Verse six, he talks about false teachers coming. He says that many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Verse seven and eight, he talks about war, both real, historic, actual wars, as well as rumors of wars and conflict. Verse eight, he also talks about natural disasters. He speaks of earthquakes and famines. And then in verses nine through 13, he talks about specific religious persecution against followers of Jesus, specific persecution of Christians. And it culminates with this incredibly ominous statement in verse 13, that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. The signs that the temple is about to be destroyed are not happy signs. These are signs of ominous warning that the disciples are to be watchful for and to not be alarmed of. Knowing that these are expected, the disciples are to discern them and see that the day of the temple's destruction is drawing near. And so those are the signs. And the disciples also asked, remember they asked, well, when will this happen? When will it occur? Jesus, as is common to him and to all the rest of the apostles, don't give a date on the calendar, but they, they give a sign of its nearness, a sign of its impending imminence. And he says this, he says that when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when the temple is about to be destroyed. Now, what in the world, verse 14, it says that, what in the world is the abomination of desolation? Well, this phrase abomination is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to, in particular reference to some desecration, some idolatry of the place of covenant worship for God's people. 
We might refer, we might use the word abomination for lots of different kinds of things, but biblically, an abomination is something that happens in God's holy place that is completely opposite to what should happen there. And Jesus says, when you see that occur, you know that the day of the temple's destruction is near. Now, there are a whole host of opinions about exactly when this did or maybe even will occur, but the majority opinion for evangelical and reformed interpreters of the word is that, that this has happened. The abomination of desolation did occur in the year 70 AD when the Roman emperor Vespasian sent his son, Titus, to culminate the Jewish war between the Romans and the Jews. And as violently as Jews sought to defend the city of Jerusalem and uh, protect the temple, the Roman forces were too great and too many. They raised the city. They leveled it, including the temple. And in those days just before the destruction of the temple, the Roman uh, armies setting up, setting up placards, setting up tribute to their emperor, who they believed was divine there in the temple complex. That was abomination, covenantally speaking, and it led to a desolation of the temple and of the city. And Jesus warned his disciples that this was coming because he loved them. He warned them that this was coming and he told them don't fight, don't stay, flee, run away. So historians have recorded, Josephus, Eusebius, historians have recorded how in that conflict, while many Jews stayed to defend the city and the temple, the majority of Christians fled, fled to a city called Pella. And there they, from there, they spread in the, the decades to come throughout the entire Roman world. As was seen in the book of Acts previous to 70 AD, so the continued spread of the gospel from Jerusalem continued. Now, that's a lot of history and a lot of theological language. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus up to? Why would he allow this to occur? What is his purpose in allowing such tribulation and such destruction? Well, there's two main purposes that are, that are embedded here that you can see in some of Jesus' words. The first purpose is that Jesus was helping his disciples to see that the temple was no longer the place where they met with God. It was no longer the place where they secured their covenantal relationship with God. It was not through the stones of the temple or the sacrifices offered there, but he would be their sacrifice. He would be their sacrifice. That through his cross, which was coming in just a few short days, that through his cross, there would be no more need for the temple. The, the curtain would be torn in two on the day of crucifixion. The temple complex leveled decades later. And by that, allowing that to occur, Jesus was clarifying for his disciples and for us that, 
that he is the focal point of our faith. The disciples began the chapter saying, look at these beautiful stones and buildings. Jesus' call is, look at me. Come to me, all you who are weary. Look to me for life alone. And so Jesus' first and perhaps primary purpose is to redirect the eyes of all of God's people and even all of humanity off of a place and to himself and to his glorious work of redemption upon the cross and the empty tomb. We'll sing at the end of the service, it is well, and there's that great verse there, verse two, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. It is by the shedding of Christ's blood that our souls are saved. And so we look to him. So that's part of what Jesus is doing here in this conversation and perhaps part of the reason that God allowed such suffering and destruction. The second reason is it found in verses nine and 10. Look down with me real quick. The end of verse nine, Jesus is talking about this particular religious persecution that's coming towards the disciples. And he says that they were, are gonna be beaten in synagogues and that they're gonna stand before governors and kings to do what? What does the end of verse eight, I'm, I'm sorry, what does the end of verse nine say? It says that they are to do that to bear witness. And then verse 10, it says that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Part of what God is doing in allowing the church in this age to suffer tribulation is that he is accomplishing the purpose of the gospel going out to every tribe and tongue and nation. It is through suffering and through persecution that the church so often spreads. Church historian Tertullian would say that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. You read the book of Acts and when does the church spread? When does the gospel go out most passionately? It's when they're most afflicted. Acts chapter seven, flip there real quick. Acts chapter seven, Stephen is persecuted and martyred. And then Acts chapter eight, verse four, we read that the Christians from Jerusalem left the city. This is before what we referred to with the destruction of the temple. But there was this great flight at that day from Jerusalem into all of Judea. And listen to what Luke says that the Christians did as they fled for their lives. Acts chapter eight, verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about preaching the word. And so it has been from the days of the apostles until now that if you want to see the church healthy, spiritually speaking, you do not look to a building. You look to the witness that these believers are bearing in their lives through words of gospel proclamation and lives of gospel faithfulness, submitting themselves to the word. And so you look across church history and you look across the globe today, where is the church strongest? It's where it's most oppressed. And that's an important word for us as a church. 
Because God's word tells us that we as the church are one body, not only collectively here on the corner of Oaklawn and Wycliffe, but we are one body globally. And when one suffers, we all suffer together. And so part of the reason that we have a missions department is to partner with churches and Christians who are suffering, to put churches in places where the gospel is being marginalized and believers are being oppressed, to bear witness to the hope of the gospel. And it's done faithfully, just as Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, accomplishes redemption for us through the cross. So now we as his people, we as his followers, live cross-shaped lives, proclaiming the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, even through suffering. And so God has his purposes here, even in the midst of tribulation. This tribulation occurred there in the first century. It's continued through all of church history. It will continue until the day of Christ's return. And we are called as God's people to endure, expecting it, and to be faithful in proclaiming. The second half of this chapter, verses 24 through 37, Jesus is speaking of his return. Yes, we live in an age of tribulation, but the day is coming when the tribulation ends, when the suffering ends, when the persecution of the church ends, and it ends when the Son of Man descends. Jesus told his disciples that he would come down just as he went up. That's what he told them just before his ascension. And so we look to heaven, we look waiting for the day of his return because we know that on that day, every injustice will be solved, every broken heart will be renewed, all of the dead in Christ will rise, all of those in Christ will be restored in perfect fellowship with our God and with our King. Time doesn't allow to look at all of the incredible places of God's word where this is depicted. But here, Jesus describes it in this way. He says, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. We may be overwhelmed by those first couple of verses. What does it mean for the sun and moon and stars to be darkened and falling? Scripture is not entirely clear what that means, but some kind of cosmic shuddering and recreation and purging of all that is evil and broken and remaking of a new heaven and a new earth. But don't miss and don't be distracted by those things for what Jesus clearly says. He says, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What we know of that great day is that all will see him. This is the return of Jesus Christ according to Mark 13 and every other passage in the Bible that describes it. It is not something secret and hidden, but is something globally obvious and plain to all. Jesus, the Son of Man, will, will come down. He will descend. He will gather his people. It talks about 
his angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth and of heaven. All of God's people restored to himself. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And he promises us, he promises us that heaven and the earth may pass away, but these words will not pass away. And so we look for Jesus' return. We, we don't know the day. We don't know the day or the hour. And every passage that Jesus, when he speaks of his return, or when the apostles speak of his return, or when the apocalypse revelation speaks of return, they affirm we do not know the day or hour, but we know it's near. It could be today. It could be in another 2,000 years. But we know he is drawing near and that he will not come until he gathers his people perfectly from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so what are we to be doing as we wait for that great day? Jesus addresses that at the very end of the passage because it would be tempting You know, if Jesus had only told us about tribulation, it would be tempting to define the Christian life by being afraid and needing to be protecting ourselves. And if he had only told us about his return, it would be tempting to live the Christian life only watching, only looking up. But Jesus has spoken clearly at the end of this passage and in so many other places of scripture, in turn later today, especially in Matthew chapter 25, uh, which parallels this passage. He's told us that in these days of waiting, we have work to do as God's people. We have responsibilities to fulfill. We are not meant to to wait idly. The New Testament is full of rebukes for people who, who are idle Christians, denying the return of Jesus Christ or claiming that it's already occurred and living carelessly. We are people called to a purpose, called to a mission, called to continue the work that Jesus has begun. And so these last verses, Jesus prepares us for his return by entrusting to us his work. He says, it's like a man, verse 34. He says, it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. In this miniature parable, Jesus says that he is the master. He is the one who owns his kingdom in this earth, and he has put his disciples and us in charge. Hopefully you don't say, made a good decision. Hopefully you say, oh my goodness, how could we, how could we foolish, weak, humble, limited creatures of dust be entrusted with the kingdom? I don't know the answer, but we know he has. And we know he's given us his Holy Spirit and his word as the tools of accomplishing this mission. And we know the charge is abundantly clear. Stay awake. Stay awake, church. He says it four times in these last verses. Stay awake. Stay awake. He makes it clear in the last verse. I say it to you and I say it to all. Stay awake. So what does that mean? Stay awake. It's, it's a metaphor. 
Staying awake certainly at the very least means being alert and watchful for the day of Christ's return. But it also means, and especially from that little parable he tells in verse 34, be faithful. Be faithful to the work you've been entrusted with. This past week, uh, it's the closing days of summer for kids. So this last week, we, we did something for our boys that they've been asking about all summer long. We eliminated a bedtime. They could stay up as late as they wanted. They could eat whatever they wanted. I know, it's a big deal. Kids, you can at least ask your parents. I don't know what they'll say. You never know. They had grand plans of how they were going to be up to see the sun rise. They had grand plans for mostly involving food and movies. And you know what? One was asleep by 9.30 and one was asleep by 10.30. I won't tell you which one. If we are to stay awake, we don't just need to be entertained or to will our eyelids open. To stay awake, we need a purpose. It is far easier to stay awake if, if there is a need to be met, if there is a mission to be accomplished, if there is work to do, and you and I have that work. Until the day Christ returns, we are called to be his witnesses to every tribe, tongue, and nation. In word, in deed, in supporting those who give themselves vocationally to that work, here in this church, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your school classroom, every single place we are called. We are called to be faithful witnesses and workers because Jesus might return in the evening. He might return tomorrow morning. He's going to return at a time we, we don't entirely expect. And we need to be found faithful. At the beginning of the conversation in this story, the, the disciples had their eyes fixed on the temple stones and buildings. That's where they were looking. And they said, Jesus, how wonderful those things are. Our calling, remembering that not one word of God's word will pass away, but all will be fulfilled. Our calling is to look not at a thing in earth, but to look to the Savior, to look to the King, to look to the Son of God and the Son of Man who is returning and to declare to him how wonderful, how marvelous you have come and you have made us your own. And Father, keep us faithful. Keep us faithful to name him and proclaim him until he returns again to take us home. Heavenly Father, we long for that great day. We pray with saints and angels, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And until that day, until that day when faith is turned to sight, Father, we pray that we would endure through all kinds of tribulation and support those who do. Keep your church faithful. And we pray that we would name the name of Jesus Christ and proclaim his word and depend on his spirit with all that we have and with all that we are. And we pray, Father, that the day of Christ's return would come quickly. Not before you save all those who you have called to yourself, but that it would come quickly. And so as we wait for that day, we pray, Father, needing your mercy, needing your power, 
Keep us, your church, faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.